We've just released our latest thesis, Threats to the Open Metaverse, The Fight Back. As a follow-up to our landmark 2021 thesis, the paper gives an overview of what's changed since then over the last couple of years, looking at the biggest threats to our vision for the Web3 space. The first of a two-part series, this is a discussion with outlier subject matter experts who are involved in bringing this thesis together from across our 100 full-time staff, which are the key risks facing the Web3 space from regulation, censorship of stable coins, and open source contract code like Tornado Cash, to NFT royalties and the centralization of blockchains and Web3 in app chains and MEV, all the way through to security risks in cross-chain bridges. But we also look at the opportunities presented from dynamic NFTs, refi and STOs, to the convergence of Web3 and AI, composable creativity, and decentralized agent-based systems. We've got Kareem Halabi, who is a token design associate here at Outlier Ventures. Kareem works very closely with our portfolio teams, helping them design tokens. It's a lot of incentive design. He's very knowledgeable about the DeFi space, very specifically knowledgeable about MEV, which he'll be talking about today. We've also got Leo from our NFT team. Again, works very closely with our portfolio teams and uh, helps them design their NFT strategy. He'll be talking a lot about royalties and about you know broader NFT strategy at Web 2.5, what it means for brands. Lorenzo Cecilia is our head of engineering. Lorenzo also works very closely with our teams, largely working on product. And we'll be speaking a lot about a lot of the technical aspects of what we term the open metaverse. And then we have Anelda, who is our, works on our legal team. And we'll be talking a lot about regulation and the changing landscape around that. And last but not least, we have our CEO and founder, Jamie Burke, who is the main ideator of this thesis. And Jamie will be asking a lot of questions and taking us through kind of the broader outline of the high-level ideas of this thesis. So maybe it's a good time right now to hand it over to Jamie. And Jamie, maybe you could take us through a lot of the high-level ideas that we find in the thesis, even give us a quick you know, forward on, on the ideas in it and, and how it came about. Thanks, Martin. Hey, everybody. Thanks for bearing with us with uh, uh, technical difficulties. Many months of underinvestment in spaces by Elon Musk is a bit distracted at the moment, I think. But great that you still managed to make it. Uh, nevertheless, as Martin said, we've got some brilliant people from across Outlier who contributed to this updated thesis. Actually, there were many, many more people involved. Martin attributed way too much of the thesis and its contents to me. Actually, I honestly have been quite shocked at some of the insights that have come through um, when we've done it. I personally learned a huge amount conducting this research, working with the various analysts and subject matter experts across Outlier. You know, I think we all feel this. You know, Web3 happens at such a pace. It's so complex and it only seems to be getting more complex. It's almost impossible to keep track of that and go about your your, your daily business. So as Martin said, uh, as I try to do uh, at the end or the beginning of a year, try to just take some time, clear my diary and just, just digest even some of the the kind of uh, thought leadership internally at Outlier, but then also what we see coming across our partner network. I would also say that, you know, we're in a really unique position as an accelerator, as the world's leading Web3 and Open Metaverse accelerator, in that we get to speak to and work with lots of founders. So I think in any given quarter, you know, we will see 
several thousand applications from all across the world, working across the full spectrum of, of Web3 and the open metaverse. And so it's from that, from that insight, we kind of distill it down and develop a thesis. And of course, we've now got a maturing portfolio as well. So we're well over 250 portfolio companies at all different stages over our uh, near decade of operations in, in Web3. And so we also have perspective across different parts, stages of uh, the, the kind of startup cycle with an increasingly maturing portfolio. So um, without ado, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the thesis, some of its kind of key contents, and I guess also how you should use it in your your, your daily life. We have a mixture of different people in our network, I'm assuming, uh, listening to this either live or recorded. But generally, you know, when we think of our audience, we think of founders. And so it's generally directed as a kind of call to arms to founders, as well as providing a framework to help them really navigate making decisions and this is features very heavily in the kind of conclusion as the way forward that we propose but we very strongly feel that the direction of travel the kind of shape and color of the metaverse and hopefully the open metaverse is going to be ultimately determined by founders in the daily decisions they make the trade-offs they make as they try to build web3 solutions with the kind of principles of sovereignty of the user and digital property rights and, and all these things that we hold dear, but at the same time make products that are usable, scalable, and not just comparable, but better than the incumbents, the kind of Web2 incumbents. Just as a quick sense check, uh, if you've kind of just found yourself in here and you're uh, trying to figure out specifically what we're referencing, you'll notice in either my Twitter feed or the OVO IOHQ official Twitter account that today we released a link to a new thesis called the open metaverse under attack it's free to download you don't need to put in an email or anything like that you can go to the website and download it and have it open now as we're talking but the link as well is uh, is available there you want to kind of save it down so what what we want to do is give you a general flavor for some of the key themes you know technical issues allowing hopefully i'll be able to invite some of the people from outlier um, who help contribute to it uh, and we might even get some founders dropping in um, that I might pull up on stage. As Martin said, you know, this is an evolution of our thinking around the open metaverse. We've been thinking about the open metaverse for some time, but actually our first framework for understanding the open metaverse, how we invest and how we work with founders in it was released um, in 21, I think first, second week uh, of January, called the Open Metaverse OS. And that was really proposing that we believe that Web3 can be an infrastructure and an operating system for a more open metaverse. And naturally, it highlighted a lot of the leading projects at the time, you know, many of which have since then suffered a great deal of stress as token economies and networks and also allowed us to drive lots of learnings we generally don't just publish a paper or thesis update for the sake of it you know we don't kind of have this hardwired that we do it annually we we do it when we think there's a material update so there's uh, been a bit of a gap between now and then you know what over 
couple of years. But we've been tracking the space naturally, and we feel, you know, on reflection, now is a critical moment in the future of Web3 and its potential for an open metaverse. Um, so we've tried to be disciplined in the things that we're talking about. We try to articulate it in a as accessible way as possible. However, some of the subject matter is uh, very technical. And I'll be honest, even for me personally, I've relied on the patience of some of our brilliant analysts to explain it over and over and over again until I get my head around it. So it is going to require potentially to upgrade your knowledge, go away, do a bit of research into certain things. I'd be amazed if everybody has a complete understanding of everything here. I certainly didn't um, before we began writing the paper. And of course, these are all moving targets as well. So what I will say is, you know, Martin and co keep me on track and I will try to kind of work through this. So generally, we, we kind of break it up into five sections. The first part is an introduction and, and revisit visits what we propose with the open metaverse os i won't do that any more than i already have done today and it lays out the kind of context and format for the thesis key takeaway there really is that this is supposed to be a beginning or a continuation of the conversation around the metaverse how it can and should be open and of course web3 both as a technology stack and as a kind of socioeconomic and political movement but then we we kind of quickly go into some key areas that we tried to group together the first one being the open uh, the open metaverse under pressure so this is looking at key events over the last two years in particular last year where there were a number of events that we think are material and could reflect some serious challenges to the metaverse staying open and ultimately um, Web3's uh, integrity and, and ability to um, extend, extend itself into wider parts of the consumer internet. The next part is this idea that understandably we have seen the rise of Web 2.5. So that is either startups and or large enterprise and platform wanting to adopt Web 3, wanting to benefit uh, from you know, some of its innovations. But at the same time, because of their requirement to grow, hit exponential growth, you know, um, engage with billions of users, they've had to make compromises, technical compromises, whether that's in a UX or, or something else. And I think in the whole, that could be seen as allowable. But the big concern there is what if it's permanent? What if uh, Web 2.5 isn't transitory? It's not taking us to Web 3. Instead, it becomes a permanent state. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. So the first two sections are, to be quite frank, quite negative. Um, you know, they are addressing concerns and fears. But the third part really allows us to talk through some key innovations, which we believe address some of these concerns, but also open up new possibilities, new proof points for the potential of Web3 and the open metaverse. Uh, and then finally, we propose a way forward, um, whilst also you know, being as pragmatic as possible. And we talk about some investment uh, areas for us that we've seen emerging through our accelerator. What's been refreshing about that is actually as we kind of reflect on what we're investing in now, what is unlocking investment from our investor network, some of those themes are 
recurring themes. They're themes that we've been talking about for several years now, including things like e-commerce, decentralized commerce, uh, identity, but also the convergence of AI and Web3. So we'll, we'll kind of close on that. So let's go to uh, the open metaverse under pressure. So one of the key things that we wanted to highlight was the importance of um, Tornado Cash, which we believe represents a wider attack on uh, cryptography and um, decentralization. I think I will pull up one of our guest speakers from Outlier to to talk about this a little bit more. Lorenzo, is this something, uh, Lorenzo or Aaron, is this something you feel uh, comfortable coming and talking about? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> I mean, as you were saying, uh, it's quite interesting uh, that Tornado Cash has been here for quite uh, a long time uh, in, in crypto space for like a couple of more years. And then last year ended up to be in the center of like, I would say the perfect storm where basically the regulator in the US, they came up with this uh, ban uh, about uh, the Tornado Cash addresses. So they basically published a list of addresses that they should have been blocked by different providers. And that was quite of a blow because one of the principles of Tornado Cash is that it's really a privacy tool. So I want to send some funds somewhere else and I want to not be tracked along the way. So Tornado Cash offer a way to unlink the, the accounts. And that was quite a, a, a nice innovation and people started to use it. But what happened is that a huge amount of money was money laundered through Tornado Cash, and the regulators decided to ban entirely uh, the, the, the uh, smart contract addresses of Tornado Cash. The consequences of that, it's really about how we use the, these technologies. And I think as we are trying to um, control uh, the tech rather than the usage, and we are just banning the tech. So a few years ago, we had a very similar discussion around cryptography um, and was about SSL. So we are seeing a bit of that as well now coming back. And back in the day, it was the time of Netscape. And so SSL was considered basically a weapon and cryptography couldn't be exported outside the, the US. And that was basically blocking the... the the e-commerce uh, completely because you can't basically send credit cards over the internet without uh, an HTTPS channel. And so that is a bit of what's happening right now. We have Tornado Cash that has been a, a huge improvement, but ended up to be banned. Now, the discussion is not finished. There are smart people working in alternatives. Uh, and, and I think uh, that shows how the tech is under threat, but the principles behind are still valid. So we want to transact on chain without giving away privacy because we can't keep to have everything tracked when it's about the money. So we can see the flaws, but we should also be in a position where we protect our privacy as a single person. I will pause here. Maybe, uh, Jamie, you want to jump in? Yeah, exactly. So uh, thanks, Lorenzo, uh, for clarity. Uh, Lorenzo is our head of engineering and uh, is very heavily involved uh, in helping founders make kind of technical decisions. Um, but I think Lorenzo 
What's interesting about that is, of course, as you say, there's a long history in government trying to control cryptography and in particular, you know, open source cryptography. We can actually even see it now in AI. Um, I think in Europe, they're talking about trying to ban LLMs, you know, large language models um, that aren't somehow validated or, or approved. And, you know, back in the day, people were walking around with T-Search with code on to demonstrate how easy it was to export that, you know, small snippets of code um, that can a- allow for, you know, some kind of functionality. But to your point, I think it's very hard to control. You know, again, history shows that. It also points to the resiliency of Web3 in that even though one of the smart contract um, developers was actually arrested, I believe, in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm not sure his fate currently, but he was held without charge. The instruction, I believe, of, uh, of US, various U.S. agencies. So it shows that there's a, there's a real physical threat, you know, that the threat of state violence still persists. But at the same time, as Lorenzo alluded to, you know, many other versions are coming through derivatives of that code base. And of course, in theory, anybody can stand it up. But again, I think the big challenge is one of the ways that they've tried to restrict and limit that is github and so github is something that can be censored and therefore open source technology can be censored and again this isn't just specific to smart contracts i think it is more more generally the the next point is around the coercion of stable coins so i'm not sure how aware most people are of the ability for various stable coins, in particular the leading stable coins, to effectively be censored by court order. So I'm actually going to invite up an elder. Uh, an elder works in our uh, legal and regulatory team to kind of talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the world of stablecoins. Hi, Jamie. Thank you. The world of stablecoins, well, indeed, payment regulations, stablecoins almost equivalent right now. And um there's a big part of the regulatory community that's very excited about stablecoins being regulated because it will, you know, make things a lot easier. But for for payment rails and, and traditional businesses, Web2 businesses that want to conduct businesses um, and, and jump into Web3. I think there's a broader uh, question around regulation um, and, and what's happening in the space just now for Web3 businesses. As always, there's, there's three jurisdictions that, that I consider um, or work with in a, on a daily basis, um, the US, the EU, and also the UK. We're not seeing anything um, really hopeful coming out of the US just yet, um, or at all, I should say, as they are still very much combative towards the industry. And um, not, you know, the SEC is not showing any goodwill or, or good intention to engage with with the likes of Coinbase, for example, and, and addressing, you know, the fact that they think their staking products are securities. They're not considering the fact that the way courts analyze or think about investment contracts is perhaps not appropriate when thinking about tokens and um, tokenization and decentralization and all the technologies that we want um, to see um, in Web3. I think um, it looks slightly better in the EU, where we have Mika coming up, which has just been passed um, by the EU Commission. And this will come into force, as everyone knows, in 2024. And this should bring crypto businesses or Web3 businesses a bit more clarity 
and um, improve the general what should I say, regulatory environment for, for crypto businesses in the EU and increase competitiveness for countries in the EU, attracting, of course, different various Web3 businesses. And I, I would argue that's ultimately good for, for the open metaverse um, but the EU is also quite focused on uh, developing a stablecoin or a CBDC, which I agree is a perfect form of censorship um, or enables censorship that we should, should resist. That's a really good point in that naturally most jurisdictions are developing CBDCs. Mm-hmm. Of course, that would be their preferred equivalent to a stable coin it gives a much greater control but what's most interesting to me is that already at a, a more technical level you know two of the top five uh, stable coins which is about 25 uh, 27% of all stable coins uh, including USDC which is circle and BUSD which is Binance are officially regulated in the US and uh, a third one including USDT can actually blacklist addresses freeze transactions so there are only actually two explicitly censorship resistant stable coins die in frax but also what we're seeing um, and we have seen that started to happen so you know the circle of whenever they've had to do it they've had to say that they will only block addresses when legally required um, by various court order. But the fact that they can is, of course, a big concern. And you mentioned uh, Mika a little bit earlier in Europe, mm-hmm. and that explicitly references placing a ban on algorithmic stable coins. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually takes us quite neatly into the kind of criminalization of, of network participation. Again, kind of coming back to some things we're seeing in Europe, this idea that uh, unhosted wallets, you know, where there is kind of self-custody could become illegal. Or in the US context, in things like staking, I think you referenced that a little bit earlier, you know, should somebody participate in uh, staking and, and therefore something like the Ethereum network, that they might have to perform KYC and AML to be able to do that, which again, fundamentally kind of undermines this idea that you know web3 allows for participation at, at all layers of of kind of that network thanks uh, thanks an elder so um we uh will now talk a little bit about what we're seeing in a markets context so naturally if you look at what happened you know last year you know most of the retail market took big haircuts you know up to 90 percent 70 to 90 percent of course there's been some recovery this year um but a lot of venture capital dried up especially uh capital that was coming in at later stage and funds that operated a venture and a kind of hedge fund type model um uh, as, as late as q4 one of the consequences of that is that um there is greater capital constraints there isn't as much money going around that's critical at all stages of of the startup life cycle but uh, especially at the early stage where most teams are operating on little to no no runway so new innovations new propositions um kind of uh, coming into the market and so our concern is that um, that leads to greater market consolidation um, in platforms like Binance, which represents about 66% of market share after the FTX collapse. I saw that they've lost a bit of market share recently. Um, and actually, uh, even CZ said, you know what, we don't need more market share. It, it's unhealthy. But the reality is, you know, to have that much control of uh, crypto trading, and especially when you remember that Binance has no shareholders, it is entirely owned and controlled by one person, and that's CZ. And even though uh, we uh, might think of him in some ways benevolent, um, 
the reality is there's a huge amount of risk around state state capture, especially in this regulatory environment. Um, and uh, you know the, the the impact of Binance going down or being taken out has on the overall market. It also means that we're expecting to see more M and A. You know, we already saw the beginnings of it. Um, with very early stage projects like, say, Artifact being acquired by Nike. We've seen kind of consolidation uh, within the Yuga Labs network. We've even seen it within our own portfolio. Uh, Futureverse did a $100 million roll-up. Now, these things aren't inherently bad, but if that consolidation happens without there being enough capital coming in the early stages of venture, that means um, we end up with a less competitive uh, market environment, uh, we end up with a lot of platform risk. Um, now, fortunately, we've seen a lot more money coming in at the earlier stages uh, in this year, Q1 and Q2. We were concerned that a lot of that money would just be doubling down into uh, existing investments from VCs. That's turned out to not be the case. However, I think that still, you know, the gap between projects that are maturing, platforms that are maturing, doing Series B, C, D, generating many millions in in, uh, in value, you know, they're naturally going to start acting in in um, in ways to grow market share. And um, the challenge is in this space, we, we don't really have a way to manage because it's so decentralized. It's not necessarily in any one jurisdiction. We don't necessarily have a way of managing antitrust. Um, and so that's kind of a big concern and 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 watch out for us uh, over the next you know twelve to twenty four months. Uh, going to quickly now jump into this kind of concept of web two point five and the associated risks. So I think you know myself and an outlier included, you know we all welcome adoption of Web3 technology and principles by incumbents, by existing platforms. And we kind of all hope that that's going to bring millions, potentially even billions of new users in, into Web3. And again, it's totally understandable that if you are a platform uh, with existing users, existing revenues, then you're going to want to make that uh, user experience as simple as possible. Um, but that forces different uh, decisions, technical decisions, different kind of compromises. The, the kind of fear and concern is that actually many of these platforms never go past Web 2.5. You know, we saw the rollout of NFTs by Instagram that then got recalled. You know, we've seen some successful implementations and things like Reddit, where they obfuscated the fact that people were necessarily even using um, blockchains and, and, and crypto to huge success. I think at one point that uh, PFP initiative by Reddit had actually done uh, more sales and transactions than uh, OpenSea in its entire history. Um, so clearly important for the space, but you know concerns that if left unchecked or unchallenged, we could end up going to an extreme of what we refer to in the thesis as the WeChat of crypto, where effectively, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I'm going to invite up Karim to talk about super apps or app chains, but the idea that we end up with these consolidated experiences in, in single apps that are operating you know, in their own side chains or whatever it may be, but that can try to bundle various services uh, to give a complete web experience in, in the way that uh, WeChat does in, in China. And of course, we know the implications of that in the web text 
And if there isn't enough Web3-ness baked into these solutions, then uh, we expect kind of similar coercion uh, or, or state capture. So uh, let's go into uh, royalties, rollbacks, and the creator economy. I believe we've got somebody from our NFT team here. I actually can't see them. In Leo, the Hey, Leo. Um, so Leo uh, works in our NFT team. They advise uh, either kind of dedicated pure play uh, NFT franchises, infrastructure, middleware um, on you know how to design rollout strategy, but then also um, general startups that might be looking to leverage NFT technology in, in some way. Leo, thanks for coming on. It would be good to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the world of royalties um, with marketplaces like uh, you know Blur, Magic Eden, Luxrad, new challenges to OpenSea coming along, and uh, some of the kind of concerns um, where we've seen this kind of uh, royalties not being honored in, in the secondary market. So this is an interesting topic with the royalties because we've seen them decrease and even drop to zero for many, many collections. And the catalyst behind this was really the shift to, to more financialization of NFTs, particularly with the launch of Blur Marketplace. So for everybody that doesn't know, Blur is uh, by now the most popular marketplace, started late last year and was really the first major player to set royalties to zero on specific collections. And the goal was to attract those large NFT traders in Wales because they were looking for high liquidity and trading volume because this is how marketplaces generate revenue, essentially. So they targeted these specific collections, which already had the most attention because zero royalties work best for the collections with high trading volume. And on top of that, they heavily incentivized trading on their marketplace with token rewards with their own native token blur, which attracted a lot of participants, not only whales and traders, but also, let's say, the average degen or those who were familiar with airdrop farming and, and dApps in general, together contributed to kind of a natural progression towards lower royalties. And in short, what happened is eventually, after a few back and forth, every other major marketplace followed and made royalties optional in order just to stay competitive because blur was so successful with their strategy. And now we're at the stage if collections don't enforce royalties themselves within with an operating filter, basically on the smart contract filter, so it's a, they can block or unblock marketplaces, optional royalties have become the default in the space. And what happened is that this had a very drastic uh, impact on prices across all collections, be that those blue chip collections or more creator-focused art, uh, music, whatever, you name it. And this happened by whales putting in bits on the blur platform very favorable bits in order to earn blur points for the potential or like the now that it happened uh, token airdrop um, and once these bits got filled they essentially held assets they were not interested in and what they did then is relisting those assets again to very favorable prices again to earn points but also through that filling bits by other traders so essentially we had a we had a ping pong of traders in Wales who, who were shifting assets one to each other they didn't want to hold and constantly relisting at lower prices, which then led to this downward spiral, which affected the whole space. And especially also those blue chip collections like the Bored Apes, the Punks, etc., which are now at price points, which we haven't seen prior to the, uh, to the 2021 boom. And maybe just to mention there also market sentiment also plays a role, of course, because in a bearish sentiment like today, those voices 
who prefer no royalties for their profits, who have a lot of capital, um, they are amplified over those who I would say are pro-royalties. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this kind of market dynamic where we had this race to the bottom in, in um and zero fee strategies um, is obviously very damaging to the market as it exists today. And there are a number of innovations coming through that kind of seek to solve this. I suspect we won't have time to talk about them today. So we're going to kind of focus more on the risks and challenges. Um, and then maybe we hold another spaces next week where we talk about the innovations and opportunities. But I think the reason why this is so important is there's been a huge amount of adoption of Web3 technologies around NFTs, you know, over the last two years, specifically by the creator economy. It's been driving a huge uh, amount of awareness and adoption. Um, and in particular, you know, large brands bringing or considering bringing IP that's worth billions on chain. Um, and so if they feel that, you know, they're risking the ability to enforce royalties around that IP, um, they're just going to sit it out. They're going to wait and see what happens. So, um, What's played out really undermines um, these markets as something that can be trusted um, to be able to kind of you know, retain or grow value around IP. And until it's fixed at a technical level, we're going to kind of see uh, you know these these concerns continue. Um, the next one I want to talk about is MEV uh, and MEV wars, uh, and also the rise of app chains. This is perhaps the more technical, one of the more technical topics in the thesis. I'm going to invite uh, Krim on to, to come and talk about it. I'll ask him to offer up a, a, a very quick explanation uh, of MEV. It's not a new concept, but what we're starting to see is, in particular on things like Ethereum v2, that there are kind of tendencies towards centralization um, around MEV. Um, but then also, as I mentioned, this potential move towards app chains, which bring huge benefits from a kind of UX and adoption perspective, but um, huge challenges and risks to the integrity of Web3 from a, a point of decentralization. But um, Karim, uh, why don't I give you um, uh, five minutes to kind of help us navigate this, introduce uh, MEV, uh, talk about um, some of the uh, um, exploitation of it, and then also uh, explain this kind of potential direction towards app chains. Sure. Hi, everyone. Well, there's a lot to break down here. Uh, perhaps I'll start by briefly explaining uh, MEV and app chains, and I'll go from there. Uh, and also, these topics are very intertwined. So MEV on a very high level, I mean, it's very disputed how people actually define MEV. But the way I would define it is like influencing something or tweaking something, whether via bribe or, or you know, or otherwise that will help reorder, that will lead to the reordering of transactions within a block or how they are sequenced, which people can exploit basically to, to gain value from. Um, that's a very high level definition. And when it comes to app chains, it's like building a custom execution environment, like a custom blockchain that is like purpose built for your application. A lot of blockchains or most of the ones we use today are, are general purpose blockchains. So they're not necessarily optimized for specific use cases. Um, so an app chain would be optimized for a specific use case. So DYDX, for example, have moved to their own app chain, which will suit their needs um, in a better way. Because when you can do that, you can customize basic, 
basically the logic of this environment and how it behaves. Um, so that's where it gets interesting from an MEV perspective because there's many different different like the design space of how you tackle MEV from a protocol design perspective is huge. So you have a lot of freedom in how you play around with this if you're making your own app chain. You know, for example, uh, you can choose a single stakeholder to whom the you know the MEV revenue accrues and figuring out different mechanisms of ensuring that this is so or maybe even eliminating MEV through some kind of strategy which also has pros and cons. Um, so something you mentioned is that MEV can have some centralizing dynamics. Uh, and this is true. The way MEV works today, especially on Ethereum, you know, it's, um, it's kind of like a marketplace for execution. You want to go do something, so you send your transaction to the mempool or one of these alternatives to the mempools we have today, like Flashbots, for example. And then different people like kind of compete to execute your transaction and try and extract the MEV from it. So the bigger a marketplace is, uh, the more MEV searchers are there and the more value that can be extracted because there's the highest number of transactions there and the most value to be extracted. So therefore, like it does trend towards centralization here because these marketplaces have network effects. And this is kind of what we see happening already. Um, and kind of the second part of uh, what we wanted to discuss was uh, the trend towards app chains, correct? Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. And uh, I guess the benefits at a very high level, like so why people are exploring app chains, maybe some examples, uh, and then, uh, again, high level the risks, we'll, we'll, and then we'll move into the, the, the kind of final one. I'll probably invite Lorenzo to come and talk about uh, cross-chain bridges and, and the challenges that we're seeing with the success of uh, Layer 2s. Yeah, so, so app chains on a high level, as I mentioned earlier, they let you customize your kind of execution logic and optimize your environment for your specific use case. So Lens Protocol, for example, are building like an optimistic layer three, I believe, which is technically an app chain, uh, you could call it, that is suited specifically for their needs. So that's really the big benefit you get. The, the big trade-off though, uh, as, as we see it, is that you, know, you lose a lot of composability and atomicity when you're fragmenting liquidity or activity across different app chains. Because if you have your own app chain for, let's say, your Uniswap and you launch your own app chain, now, you know, maybe I can't, you know, do an atomic arbitrage across Uniswap and another DEX. In DeFi, this kind of atomicity is very, very important because we can have flash loans and flash loans give us infinite capital scalability, which is one of the zero to one innovations of DeFi. People love hyping up the app chain narrative, and definitely we will have more and more app chains. But for DeFi specifically, I don't think every big DeFi app is going to launch it because they lose this an element, a degree of composability. So unless you're kind of a base layer protocol, which other protocols build on top of, you're likely not going to launch your own app chain. Uh, if, if, for example, you're a perps protocol that's built on top of synthetics, you have no reason to build your own app chain because then you're losing the, the basic functioning of your products. But if you're synthetics, for example, you would have a stronger reasoning to build your own app chain, maybe to capture your own MEV and not give it to all these random Ethereum characters. 
But I'd say on a high level, also, that's kind of the main trade-off. Yes, Lorenzo, I mean, I guess in a way it's linked, right? We, we've been seeing the success, continued success of Layer 2s. Um, you know, a, a lot of the adoption, certainly at brand level, seems to be kind of coming through there. But at the same time, these kind of cross-chain bridges bring a lot of risks and challenges. And I think, you know, bridges are now kind of widely regarded as the biggest risk to the security um, in the context of Web3 um, because of the composability and because of the kind of complex nature of the chains that are using them. Could you explain a little bit more about that, the risks and challenges? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think uh, maybe to build up uh, on what Karim was saying, like up chains, it's a way uh, to see scalability and how we can uh, basically optimize the block space. So some projects are going in this direction to uh, optimize for their specific use case. No? The DYDX is a very good example. Uh, but as you were saying, uh, Jamie, there is this uh, now product market fit, I would say, on the layer two in the Ethereum ecosystem that is like through optimism and Arbitrum where we see like there is um, uh, liquidity there and things are happening there. However, we already saw um, some situation where uh, the throughput was, was not enough. So even the layer two technologies were not ready, for example, for the airdrop of Arbitrum. The, the entire system was freezing for, for like a uh, few hours really uh, because the, the demand of uh, transaction of people are trying, they were trying to um, claim their airdrops. Um, and so what tells us is that the layer twos needs to scale themselves. And we can see now, uh, even after the announce of base, that there is a lot of technologies involved there. And we are starting to see uh, a, an emerging stack. Like there is now this concept of uh, optimist stack that it's uh, a number of tools uh, that can be leveraged by users uh, to, sorry, by developers uh, to implement their solution. And what could happen and is that basically we're going to have multiple layer two solutions interconnected. And this interconnection uh, brings us in this problem of, of the bridges. So we really need to uh, take care of that. And right now, there is no perfect solution. There are a few um, new actors coming in, such as like, for example, Layer Zero or Axelor that are trying to bring some novelty. And one of the concept is to have a, a, a concept of a token that is uh, cross-chain. So I can have a representation of USDC that is uh, shared among all the uh, chains involved. This is very nice from an uh, abstraction perspective, but security, it's really the main problem. And I think we have a long list of um, security acts on the bridges because clearly they are an honeypot. And unfortunately, as soon as you move through a bridge, basically you are accepting the risk that sometime in the future, something could go wrong. And this is also why uh, we saw some uh, huge adoption in, in layer one, because people are not trusting yet the layer twos and bridges are actually very, very painful. So uh, I definitely see uh, bridges playing a major role, particularly in, in the uh, connect the, the layer twos between themselves. Uh, but it's really ongoing. And 
probably formal verification is the best tools we have, but it's also a matter of time. No, uh, is the more a system is up and running without hacking, the more people can trust it. And so these tech are, are new, so we really need to work more on that. Great, thanks, Lorenzo. So uh, we're coming up our quarter past the hour. We had a late start, obviously. I think given the technical issues that we had at the beginning, we will we'll come back next week um, and do the kind of second half of the paper. So what we've laid out today was really um, the context for the paper is an evolution to the original uh, Open Metaverse OS. We talked about the various ways that uh, the Open Metaverse and Web3 are under pressure uh, at a kind of uh, primarily regulatory sense. We've looked at some of the market trends leading to consolidation. Um, and then we've talked about um, some of the kind of technical concerns and considerations from MEV all the way to app chains and uh, layer two and, and cross chain bridges. This is by no means everything. What we try to do is distill down the key things um, and hopefully that gives you a sense of some areas that you can go, go off and do some of your own research again we wrote the paper for a reason so do make sure you go and read it check it out it elaborates in a little bit more detail and it's got various links to some of the things that we've been talking about today um, when we come back next week we'll be talking about innovation and opportunity in the metaverse so it would be a little bit more upbeat a little bit more positive um, things around composable creativity and the new new creator economy zero knowledge proofs their potential generally and then also in the context of being a trust layer for ai we'll talk about how the ukraine has become a battlefield to battle test the concept of the network state and Web3 technologies. Um, we'll talk about ReFi and how DeFi can have a second life where uh, it can hopefully make greater financial impact around an inclusion perspective. We'll talk about how there are some innovations to counter some of the challenges we spoke about earlier today around NFTs and royalties. Um, and then we'll propose, um, as I said, some emerging Themes and trends ranging from identity in the Web3 social graph, e-commerce, connecting Web3 up to real-world assets, um, and then going beyond generative AI towards agent-based systems. Uh, if you've been following us or me for a while, you know that's um, uh, a kind of topic I love to talk about um, for the direction where all this is heading. So thanks for bearing with us at the start and uh, listening in. Hopefully next week, we won't have the same technical issues. Um, if you are listening to this in a recorded form, um, you should also kind of come back, set your reminder for next week. I have just recorded an audiobook version of the paper as well, which will be released uh, over the coming week or so, where I'll kind of talk through each of the stages. So thanks to the outlier folks, uh, various analysts and subject matter experts for coming on and elaborating on some of these points. Uh, hopefully it helps demonstrate the breadth and depth of the bench that we've got here. Uh, just shy of 100 people full time dedicated to helping Web3 founders navigate all of these complexities. Because in summary, as I said at the top end, you know, when we think of our audience for these things, we're thinking of founders. Um, being a founder, early stage founders, hard enough. When you start adding in all of these complexities of regulatory risk, technical risk, each decision kind of adds to the, the burden 
of just being a founder and, and getting product market fit. So we're here to help relieve that burden, give you access to some of the world's leading experts on the 360 of subject matter that you need to have a basic understanding of as a Web3 startup. Thanks for all your time. Please do read, tweet, share, comment on the paper. We'd love to know what you think. If you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3